So I personally like uh, history. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a history buff, but I do enjoy um, historical fiction, listening to some history podcasts. And uh, one type of history that I find is, is very interesting is the American Revolution. And now when looking at uh, many of the founding fathers of the United States, all of them pretty much come from these well-off and, and rich backgrounds from the very beginning. John Jay, who you may have heard of, was one of the primary um, framers of the Constitution. He was also the first Supreme Court Justice of the United States. He was born into a wealthy family of merchants. Thomas Jefferson, who I'm sure you've heard of, uh, was the author of the Declaration of Independence, and he came from a, from a plantation that uh, had 150 slaves, so he was rich as well. And of course, there's George Washington, the first president of the United States, who was considered to be the richest president to ever live, besides the 45th president, Donald Trump. But this was not the case with one founding father. His name was Alexander Hamilton. See, Alexander was born to a, a woman out of wedlock in the Caribbean islands. His father soon abandoned him and his mother, and at the age of, his, of 11, his mother passed away from yellow fever. And so this left Alexander and his brother orphaned. And in order to put food on the table, Alexander began working as a clerk uh, at, a, at a shipping company. And very soon he proved to be a capable administrator, and by the age of 14, he was put in charge of this trading charter. But one day, however, a hurricane came to this island and completely devastated the island. And in response, Alexander wrote an essay about it, and it was published in the local newspaper. And after reading it, the people of this small island saw his unbelievable skill at writing, and they came together and raised money to send Alexander to the States in order to get an education. Well, for Alexander, that was all that it took. He soon became one of the biggest players in America. In history. He was a, a skilled captain in the Revolutionary War. He shaped and defended the U.S. Constitution. He was the chief architect behind the American financial system, and he became one of the seven founding fathers of the United States. And so here we have what you would call an unlikely hero. Now, he was a, a bastard orphan immigrant who became one of the most influential people in all of American history. Well, this morning, we're also going to be looking at an unlikely story that features an even more unlikely hero and from even more unlikely circumstances. And for that reason, I've titled this sermon, The Unlikely Entrance of the Messiah. And we're going to look at five unlikely components of, of Jesus's birth. And so let's read our passage this morning. We're going to be looking in Luke 1. If you're not already there, you can turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Luke 1, verse 26 to 38. God's Word says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. 
the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will receive in your womb and bear, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. See, last week we read about the announcement of John the Baptist, and we saw that what happened there was a miracle. Elizabeth, a a woman, who is barren her whole life, who is past the, the ages of childbearing, has now become pregnant with a son, John the Baptist. And in, in doing so, God is sending the first prophet that he has sent uh, in 400 years, breaking his silence with this spectacular event. But as we'll see in our passage, it's about to get even more spectacular. See, John's birth was amazing, but the one that John is pointing to is going to be even more amazing. But it's not going to happen in, in ways and in places and, in, and with people that we would expect. You know, there are some unlikely circumstances that frame the birth of our Lord, our Messiah. And the first one is an unlikely place. An unlikely place. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, if you remember, I mean, here's a little trivia question for the children. Where was the birth of John the Baptist announced? Any of you children know or remember? In Jerusalem, right? God appeared, uh, Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the temple, and he announced that John the Baptist was going to be born. And you would expect that the Messiah's birth who's even greater than John, would be announced there as well too. But we see that instead, the angel Gabriel goes and appears in a city named Nazareth. Now to us, we probably all know what Nazareth is because we read our Bible, we know where Christ lived, and we read about it in the New Testament. But at the time of Jesus, it was not a well-known place. It's like when my family, when we were Moving here to Smith Falls, we told people we're moving to Smith Falls, and uh, the responses would either be, do you mean Smithville, or where is Smith Falls? And so that's what Nazareth is kind of like. It's, it's not a very well-known place. When people hear you're from Nazareth, they say, where is Nazareth? 
Also, Nazareth wasn't a, a highly respected place. I guess a little bit like Smith's Falls in that way as well. And at the time of, of Jesus, Israel was, was divided up into these three regions. Uh, so you had the region of Judea in the north, and that contained Jerusalem, Bethlehem, most of the important places. And then above that, you had a region called Samaria, which was part of um, the, the greater region of Israel. And Samaria was considered, the Jews didn't consider it as part of Israel, uh, but the Samaritans considered themselves to be worshiping uh, Yahweh, the, the one God of the Jews. And then above that, you had the region of Galilee. And Galilee was uh, kind of separated from true Israel uh, down in uh, sorry, the south, down in the south uh, where um, Judea was. And now most Jews, at least the influential ones, they didn't really respect the regions of Galilee all that much, especially a small town like Nazareth. If you remember the story of, in John where Jesus is calling his disciples, he, uh, a disciple goes and tells Nathanael, hey, I found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And what is Nathanael's response? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so there's this idea that, okay, Nazareth is not really this special place. And yet, this is where God decides to send Gabriel. This is where God decides to send his only begotten son to the town of Nazareth, an unlikely place. And God doesn't stop his, his working with unlikely things here. Look at the next verse, uh, 27 to 30. So he sends, he sends Gabriel, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, and of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. See, the second component of Christ's unlikely birth is an unlikely mother. An unlikely mother. And we're introduced here to the mother of Jesus, Mary. And she's described in two ways. She's described as uh, a virgin who is to be betrothed. Now, betrothal is not something that we hear often today. So in a way, it's, it's kind of like an engagement, but not quite. In an engagement, two people uh, are saying that they are, are going to get married to one another, but it's something that, that can be called off pretty easily, and there's not really many repercussions. You might lose a down payment here or there. But in a betrothal... And it is an actual binding agreement of commitment to marry. That's what's being made in a betrothal. That's why in Matthew's gospel, when Joseph is, is planning to, he finds out that Mary is pregnant, and he's planning uh, to divorce her, he actually needs to divorce her, even though they're not married yet. Because to get out of a, a betrothal, that is what is needed, because it was a legal binding um, status to be in, to be betrothed. It's not called off like engagements today. And so Mary is, is betrothed. She's almost married to Joseph. And then we're told twice in verse 27 that Mary is a virgin. Now the reason that Luke mentions this is, is critical, and we'll, we'll talk more about the virgin birth later in the sermon, but for now it's important to note that Mary is a, is a virgin and that Luke is making this comparison to of Mary to Zechariah and Elizabeth from before. And his comparison is to show us that Jesus' birth is, is even more 
miraculous than John's. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were, they were old and they were past the age of conceiving, but you know, the act of conceiving was probably still an occurrence. At least I'm assuming so. I can't say for sure. But what I can say for sure is that in the case of Mary, she is still a virgin. There's literally zero chance of her getting pregnant. I remember being taught multiple times in my health class that you know, abstinence is the only birth control that is 100%. But Mary, she, so, so Mary, if it's, if it's natural, there's no way that Mary can get pregnant. That is unless God intervenes. But we'll talk more about the virgin birth later. And the point is that Mary, she is this young, betrothed virgin from the small town of of Nazareth. Now, given this information, the question we should be thinking, the question we should be asking is, is this Mary a likely person to become the mother of the the King David that is to come, the promised Messiah? And the answer is, is no. She's not the likely person that would be chosen. Absolutely not. And Mary knows that. And that's why Mary, in verses 28 and 29, she's confused when the angel comes and talks to her. Look again at verse 28 and 29. It says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. See, Mary is trying to discern why why is the angel calling her favored one? In this society that she lives in, you know, a young betrothed woman from, from Galilee is not favored by really anyone. And in that, we see, I think, one of the first key takeaways from the passage. And this is a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible, and that is that God, God uses the little people of the world to accomplish his plans. God uses the little people of the world to accomplish his plans. Look at Jesus' disciples. I mean, it's a ragtag group of fishermen, tax collectors, and political outcasts. Look at the birth of Christ. Who is it first announced to? It's announced to stinky, lower-class shepherds out in the field watching their sheep. Look at where Jesus is born. Talking to my kids about this. Kings are born in palaces. Where is Jesus born? He's born in a manger. Who is his mother? A poor virgin uh, woman from Galilee. And we see that God uses the little people to accomplish his plans. It's like what you see in the Lord of the Rings. You know, you have these characters like Gandalf, a, a powerful wizard, and you have Aragorn, the future king of Gondor. You have Elrond, this powerful elf lord. And yet... Who is the one, the only one, who can carry the ring to Mordor? It's a little hobbit from the Shire. Now that's how God works. He, he uses the, the little people of the world to accomplish his plans. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 to 28 is a passage that makes this so clear. And so listen to these words. It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of 
noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So you don't have to be smart, strong, rich, or of noble birth to be used by God. Now you might think that God won't use me because I'm not qualified. I don't always have the right answers. I can't talk theology like others can talk theology. But that is exactly the kind of person that we see God using all throughout Scripture. And God will use us if we step out in faith. And so be encouraged this morning. You know, when in, we're all called to be ministering, doing the work of ministry for the Lord. And so when in, in whatever area you are ministering for the Lord, whether that be in, you know, raising your children, whether that be in, in sharing the, the gospel with your coworkers, and in serving others by cleaning up or by uh, having people over for dinner and serving them or, or helping out your neighbor, in whatever area, God, know that God uses the little people of the world to glorify himself. You don't have to be anything special to be used by God. And so we have an unlikely place. We have an unlikely mother. And now let's move on to our, our third component, an unlikely son, an unlikely son. Look at verses 31 to 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now I call the son here unlikely, uh, but he's, he's unlike in a different way that I've been, than I've been using it before. I was saying, here I'm, here I'm using it to mean that he is unlike any other son. He is unlike, he's unique. He's, he's set apart from all the other sons and daughters that have ever come. He is, as the passage says, Later on, holy. He is holy. He is set apart, unique. And we notice three things about this unlikely holy son. First, his name will be Jesus. His name will be Jesus. Now, this isn't, at this time, this isn't a very unique name. I mean, today, you've got to be pretty bold if you're going to name your kid Jesus. But back then, it was a pretty common name. It's the same name as Joshua. In the Hebrew, it's, it's Yeshua. Jesus, Joshua are the same name, and it was pretty common at that time. But does anybody know what the, what the name Yeshua means? It means the Lord is salvation, or the Lord is my deliverance. And in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, the angel tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so then the name Jesus is very fitting for the name of the Messiah. For the whole reason that the Messiah was sent was to come as the full 
and final offering for sin. You know, to bring salvation, to bring redemption, to bring deliverance to his people, to save his people from their sins. So we see that's the first thing. His name will be Jesus. Second, we see that Jesus is to be Israel's long-awaited king. And so here Luke is referencing 2 Samuel 7, which we read earlier this morning. In that passage, the Lord makes a, a covenant with David. And in that covenant, he promises that one day he will raise up an offspring from David who will build a house for the Lord and who shall sit on his throne forever. As I talked about, we have seen a a partial fulfillment of that covenant in the coming of Solomon. Solomon is a son of David who builds a house, builds the temple for the Lord, and he sits on the throne of his father. But he doesn't do so forever. See, it's not until the new covenant that Christ comes and ushers in the true and ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And Christ builds for himself a house, but not a house made by man or a house made of stone, but what Peter calls a a spiritual house made of living stones. The house of God made of the people of God who have been purchased by the blood of God redeemed from their sins. That is the house that Jesus comes to build. And then we see that Jesus is the promised Davidic king who rules forever. But as we're going to continue our study through the book of Luke, we'll see that Christ's kingship is not like what we must think, is not like what we might think it would look like. You know, the Jews at the time, they some of them didn't think Christ could be the Messiah because they didn't see him as a as a uh, political leader. You know, he wasn't someone who was going to rescue them from their oppressors in Rome. So how could he be the Messiah? They wanted a a political king who would rule. But we see that Jesus' kingship is more than that. It's more than that. So what kind of king was Jesus? If you remember, as he stood there before Pilate, he was questioned. Your people call you the king of the Jews. And what does Jesus say? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, in saying that, what he's meaning is that he does not derive his power as king in the same way that that worldly leaders derive their power. He does not have his authority given to him by man and then taken away by man. His kingdom is not of this world. It's not like this world. He has been made king by God. And now he sits at the right hand of God with all authority being given to him. And then he rules first and foremost over a spiritual kingdom with the goal of establishing his dominion as Lord and King in the hearts of all of his chosen people. And that's why why the Great Commission is so important. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. What we are doing is we are going and bringing people under the kingship and rule of Christ by the proclamation of his gospel. And so that's the first way that Christ rules as king over the hearts of his people. And we see that there will also be an earthly ruling of Christ as well, where he is going to rule over the nations, as the Bible says, with a rod of iron. And as Isaiah 9 verse 6, often read at Christmas, says, 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and on him, and, and the government will be on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. Now, Christians differ on this issue of whether Christ's earthly rule has already begun. Is Christ, to ask the question to see where you stand, would be, is Christ now ruling over the nations with a rod of iron? Is he, has his earthly rule begun? You know, one side says that, yes, he is currently ruling. You know, Christ currently rules now on earth, but he rules in and through his church, his people, his ambassadors rule uh, over the earth. And then the other side says, you know, that his earthly rule is still yet to come. And we see seeds of it, but it's still yet to come, and it will come when Christ returns again. If you want to know my answer, you're going to have to come and talk to me at a later time because I don't want to get too many angry emails. So either way, both sides agree that Christ is king and that he is the long-awaited son of David who will sit on his throne forever. And you go, you study the scriptures for yourself, uh, and you come to your decision uh, on whether he is ruling now on earth or will rule. And now the third and final thing that we see about Jesus is that he is God in the flesh. He's called here the Son of the Most High and the Son of God. And listen to these words from the book of Hebrews 1 about what it meant that Jesus was the Son of God. Now we, we hear this term, Jesus is the Son of God. What does that actually mean? And this is from Hebrews 1. It says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my Son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking to the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. See, Jesus is no mere man. He's no mere man. He is the Lord God himself. He is the Son of God, God in the flesh, the very manifestation of God among us. And this leads to our fourth point, an unlikely conception. So we have an unlikely place, an unlikely mother, an unlikely son, and now we have an unlikely conception. Look at verse 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I said earlier that I would get back to the virgin birth, and I want to quickly mention the importance of it. Perhaps you're like me, and you stay up at night thinking of questions like, did Christ have to be born a virgin, or born of a virgin? And if so, why was it necessary? Why did Christ need to be born of a virgin? And I'll quickly give you three reasons why he had to be. First, the virgin birth is a reminder to us that our salvation 
is supernatural. Our salvation is supernatural. It must come from God and God alone. No matter how hard we try, it will never come by human effort. So we all have a, a serious problem with sin to the point that we cannot do anything good before the Lord. All of our works, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. All of the good that we bring to God can do nothing. And the only way for us to be saved from our sin is if God supernaturally intervenes. You know, for God to save us, he had to supernaturally orchestrate the birth of Christ through a virgin. Second, the virgin birth makes possible the uniting of the full deity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ into one single person. You know, think of it this way. Jesus needed to be fully God and fully man in order to be the mediator between God and man and to take our sins. You know, if Jesus was not fully man, then he would not be able to be a substitute for man. You know, man's blood needed to be shed on behalf of man. So he couldn't shed the blood of, of bulls and goats. They never covered the sins of man. A man needed to die for man. And if Jesus was not fully God, he could not have borne the eternal wrath of God and have been raised from the dead. You know, no mere man has the power to raise himself from the dead. Jesus says, I have the authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it up again. And that is because he is God. He is able to raise from the dead and conquer sin and death in doing so. And so Jesus then needed to be fully man and fully God if he were to be our perfect mediator and substitute. And now how do you get a, a God-man like Jesus? Well, it's only through the virgin birth and where the full humanity and the full deity of Christ are combined to make the true mediator, the Lord Christ Jesus himself. And then third, the third reason why the virgin birth was necessary is because it makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. His true humanity without inherited sin. And the Bible is clear that all mankind is born with a sinful nature. And we read a couple weeks ago, uh, Psalm 51, David says, In sin did my mother conceive me. You know, indicating that even before his birth, he was sinful. And then in Romans 5, we see that through one, one man's trespass, Adam's trespass, all have sinned and all are condemned to death before God. Adam's sin was passed to us and we are all therefore guilty and condemned before God. This is the doctrine of original sin, which the Bible teaches. And so the question is, was Jesus born with original sin? I mean, Jesus was born a man. All men are born with a sinful nature, was Jesus born with original sin? And the answer has to be no. It has to be no. Because if Christ was born with original sin, then he wouldn't have been sinless. And if he wasn't sinless, then he couldn't have been an acceptable sacrifice on our behalf for our sin. And so then, how, how is it that Christ was born without sin? Well, if you talk to a, a good Catholic... You know, what will their answer be? It will be because Mary herself was sinless. And therefore, Mary had no sinful nature 
to pass on to Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is, is sin, that's how Jesus is able to be sinless. But that creates a problem because immediately you think, okay, then how was Mary sinless? Well, then her parents must have been sinless if they didn't pass any sin to her. Well, what about her parents? How, how were they sinless? Well, their parents must have been sinless if, if, if they uh, didn't have any sin passed to them. And you go all the way back to a sinless who? A sinless Adam, which defeats the whole purpose of Jesus coming in the first place. No, the reason that Jesus inherited no original sin was because he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Verse 35 says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Therefore, the child born to you will be called holy. See, in the supernatural birth of Christ, the Holy Spirit's involvement in the generation of the child within Mary's womb Preserve the Son of God from inheriting the sinful nature that we all inherit in our birth. And so hopefully I've, I've convinced you of the importance of the virgin birth. It's not just an inconsequential doctrine that can be believed or not believed. There's people in the scholarly Christian world that will deny the, the virgin birth. But the problem is, if you don't have the virgin birth, you don't have the deity of Christ. If you don't have the virgin birth, you don't have a sinless Savior. And if you don't have a divine sinless Savior, well, you have no Savior at all. So if you deny the virgin birth, you deny the only way of salvation that God has provided. And now finishing up with our, our final, fifth and final point of the passage, we're going to look at Mary's unlikely response, her unlikely response to all of this. Verse 37 says this, For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. After studying this passage over this past week, I've, I've grown to have a deep respect for Mary. I came from a Catholic background, and so that kind of tainted my view of Mary for a little while um, because of how highly they exalt her. But what I see here is that, is that Mary is really a, a woman of, of faith because Mary's life was going to be radically changed by this. You know, God was asking her to take a gigantic step of faith here. I mean, imagine, imagine yourself encountering someone like this in your own life. A young lady comes up to you and tells you, Hi, I wanted to let you know that I am I'm pregnant, but I am a, I'm still a virgin. And uh, yeah, the child that I'm carrying is the promised Messiah, the future king of Israel, the very son of God himself. And oh yeah, an angel, an angel appeared to me and told me all of this stuff. You know, what would you do? You'd probably look at her and be like, okay, let's, let's get you back to the, to the psych ward there, Mary. See, Mary was, was taking a, a huge step of faith here to trust in God. Imagine some of the thoughts and questions that were running through Mary's mind when the angel is saying all of this to her. You know, what is my community going to think about this? What will my, my parents think about this when they hear about this? What is my husband, who I'm betrothed to Mary, going to say when he finds out I'm pregnant? 
you know, Jonah's res- or, uh, Joseph's response was, okay, I'm going to, you know, quietly divorce her because clearly she has not been faithful to me. And that's why an angel needs to come and, and tell him, no, this is the work of God because what has happened is completely unheard of. You know, Mary could have thought of all of these different excuses not to be used by God. But instead, look at her response. I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now Mary, Mary rightfully recognizes that in light of, of God's plans, her calling, our calling, is to humble herself, submit to the will of God, and be his servant, no matter the societal consequences. Now, can the same thing be said about you? Are you willing to submit to God to be his servant no matter the cost? Jesus said to the rich young ruler, go and sell all that you have and then come and follow me. Would you do that for Christ if he asked you to? Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. For it's better to walk through this life blind than it is to be thrown able-bodied into hell. Do you actually believe that? Do you actually see holiness and obedience to God as more important than your comforts here on earth? And Christ says, those who do not give up Everything, you cannot be my disciples. You cannot be my disciples. Would you give up everything and anything in order to follow Christ? Christ demands your total submission to him as Lord and King. And if you're not willing to do that, Jesus says it. You cannot be my disciple. No matter what excuse you drop in your mind, you know, what about my, what my coworkers might think? What about what the government might do to me if I follow the Lord Jesus like this? What about me and my happiness and my desires and my aspirations in this world? You know, what about all of those things? Well, there will not be a single excuse for not giving your life fully and faithfully to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is, that is the call for you, for all of us this morning. Do not make any more excuses for not following God. You might not be very skilled, not be very eloquent, not be very smart, not be very charismatic. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God uses the little people of the world to accomplish his big plan. So don't make any more excuses the promised Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God has come and he requires you to humble yourself, to submit to God, to cast aside your vain pursuits and desires and to give your life fully in service of Christ's glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we see that you in your grace and mercy have sent the perfect mediator, the perfect son,
to come and ransom and save us from our sins. Lord, we were dead. We were drowning. We were unable to be revived by any of our own means. And yet at that moment, you sent your Son to come and to bear our sin and to to carry the cross that we should be carrying, to bear the wrath that we deserve to bear for our sin. And now you call us, Lord, to follow you, to set aside all things, to take up our cross daily and follow you. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us the power and the grace to do that. Lord, it is hard. You command us to do hard things, and yet you are worth it. You are worth the sacrifice. You are worth setting aside our comforts. You are worth setting aside our passions and our desires. And so, Lord, would you help us to follow you, to hold on to the cross, and to give our lives fully and faithfully for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.